0: We ask now, you be in our midst in a great and mighty way, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Heavy section, huh? And and really, uh, there's not much in Ezekiel that we've gone through so far that wouldn't apply to that, some more than others. But I've titled our study tonight, No More Words, No More Words and we'll look at four things, and I'll give them to you as we go. Uh, The first one I will call the start. First uh, couple of verses here. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, said a man write down the name of this day, this very day. And the king of Babylon started his siege. The date, if you are using the Gregorian calendar like we use, uh, appears to have been January 15, 588 B.C. January 15, 588 B.C. It's back in chapter 1. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 2, it's believed that that passage is 597 B.C. So approximately nine years, nine years of Ezekiel periodically giving a detailed and descriptive warning of judgment that was coming and has finally come. Now think about it, nine years, year one, oh come on, year two, come on Ezekiel, year three, still hasn't happened yet, year four, still hasn't happened, five, six, seven, eight, this is the day, this very day. And it started this specific day, January 15th, 588 B.C. This is when the siege and the stranglehold around Jerusalem would begin. Nebuchadnezzar is there. His army has now surrounded the city. It would last 18 months, 18 months until the siege mounds and everything had breached the city to come in. During those 18 months, it would be horrific. People would begin eating their own children, all types of uh, disease rampant because the sewage system is now inside the city. You've got all kinds of uh, people starving, water supply somewhat limited, all of these things that would come into play. But the siege would start, and if you want to read more about it, you can go to Jeremiah chapter 39 or uh, Jeremiah chapter 52. For Ezekiel, as he got up that day, It might have felt like any other day when he got up. So you never really know what a day may bring, do you? You Every now and then I reference it. I remember uh, 9-11, getting up. I was in a Cincinnati hotel, just in the middle of giving a business presentation, take a small bio break and find out that there's no need to continue the meeting because a lot bigger things were taking place. Some things overshadow other things, don't they? kind of put everything else in perspective. But what he got up this day may have felt like any other day, but this wasn't any other day. His beloved city, Jerusalem, was now surrounded by a vicious army, bent on total destruction, but that was only going to be part of the sorrow of that day. That was only going to be a part of it. Now understand that only God could have known and revealed what was taking place Hundreds of miles away, remember Ezekiel's in Babylon, he's hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, there's not CNN cameras on Jerusalem. King Nebuchadnezzar would have kept his plans secret, he would have kept them very close to the vest. The people of Babylon would not have even known what was happening in Jerusalem until Sometime later when couriers would bring back news that the siege has now been set in. So uh, anyone in Babylon, it would have been like any other day. One man knew what was going on 100 miles away. God told him today, while you got up this morning, Babylon has now surrounded Jerusalem. Later when the couriers would be sent back by the king or the commanders, everybody else would know. And then the Lord's prophecy would be validated because Ezekiel would have been the first one before anyone told anybody, Ezekiel would be able to tell the people the siege started today. Well, how do you know that? You're not there. God told me. Well, how will we know you're right when the couriers get here months later and say it started January 15th, 588 B.C.? They would know for certain. Validate the Word of God. It would take weeks or months for that news, to get there, depending on the time of the year, depending on the route, depending on the mode of travel, to get from Jerusalem to Babylon is 700 to 1,000 miles via the routes that they would take. A bird can fly at about, five, it's about 500 miles on a straight line, but nobody goes there on a straight line. You have to go north to go south. So different routes, 700 to 1,000 miles, depending on the route, depending on the time of the year. But now the judgment commences, and the Lord gives one final instruction here, on this judgment this picture if you will let's take a look if you're taking notes that was the start we'll look at the symbol here the symbol of verses 3 through 14 we left off if you're with us in chapter 23 in chapter 23 with this picture that god painted of jerusalem as one of the harlot sisters remember that not a not a great thing to be called if you're a city one of the harlot sisters. It gives you a good idea of what how God is feeling towards the city at that moment, right? And the other sister, of course, as we looked at, was Samaria up in the northern kingdom. But in this final picture, it's a parable of the siege itself, not just the, not just the nature or the character of the city, which, which God considered a harlot, but this is a picture more of the siege itself, now notice the uh, in opening, inditing words of this final parable and utter a parable, verse 3, to the rebellious house. Again, whether it's harlot city, rebellious house, the Lord is indicating that this is a group of people that have completely resisted God and have gone down a path of wickedness. And then he goes into this This uh, parable or this picture here, and we see in verse 3, put on a pot, set it on, also put water unto it. Now, all of us that that have homes, we're very familiar. We cook with pots even today. Nothing's changed there, right? You know, we uh, throw the pot on there, steam things. Maybe you cook some chicken breast in there. This was um, a common means of cooking. They would uh, chop things up, put it over a fire and broil it, or, or boil it, I should say, not broil, but boil it uh, in water. And the, verse 4, these choice cuts, the choice cuts, uh, it says a flock. Uh, the indication here is lambs, a choice cut of lambs. Uh, think of this as a picture of God's chosen people, the sheep of his pasture, the sheep of his flock, those that were appointed by him. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the descendants, appointed to represent him in the world, to have the temple in their midst. But now, the picture is they're being boiled in a pot under the intense heat of the Babylonian siege. The pot, the city, the choice cuts, the people, the flesh, mentioned also, this same picture is mentioned very briefly, uh, not in the depth that is here, very briefly. It's mentioned back in chapter 11. The Lord refers to the pot and the flesh uh, all the way back in chapter 11. Now, your, some of your Bibles, uh, in, in, it goes on to talk about uh, the scum. Some of your Bibles may say rust, depending on, your, uh, depending on uh, the, the version of the scriptures you're using. Rust is a good is a good translation as well. Um, this scum or this rust of the pot, it symbolizes corruption. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like rust in my food, and I don't like scum in the food either. So either uh, are, are things you would not want inside your cooking. But the rust or the scum, it's a picture of the corruption. It's a picture, uh, God's using this terminology Uh, it it describes a nation that's falling apart. Think about when something's rusting out, and you don't know it's rusting out. The nation is falling apart and doesn't even know it. Yeah, Jeremiah's told them. Ezekiel's prophesied over in in Babylon. They've had others that have spoken up, but the people didn't believe. They didn't believe these things. They listened to the false prophets. Everything's going to be fine. We're doing great. Have you checked the stock market? It's flying high. That's the kind of things that they would hear, the kind of things that they would speak to themselves. They would reassure themselves, we're not rusting. There's no corruption. There's no scum. But the rust and the corruption, not just that the nation was falling apart and they didn't know it, but they had the moral corruption of sexual immorality, which was rampant. They had the corruption of idolatry worshiping the gods of the people around them. They had political corruption, flattery, bribery, special rules for the connected. Good thing that doesn't happen anymore, right? Of course, all these things still happen, not only here in America, but around the world. But the rusted pot, or if if you think about a pot that has got rust in it, The city, representing the pot, it's not just going to slowly fade away. That might be the way some people would like it to happen. Say, all right, all right. So God's, let's say before the day of judgment came that someone did believe, say, all right, I believe God is going to take us down. I believe God, all right, I, I get you. All of our idolatry, all of our immorality, all of our bloodshed, all of the things that we're doing. So the Lord is going to judge us as a people. This is taking us back in their time. And someone would agree with that saying, but but it's probably just going to be that we're just going to slowly fade away. You know, I hear Americans sometimes think that. Well, if anything happens, we'll just kind of slowly fade away. That could happen, but I don't know about you, but you and I can't see the future. We can see the past, and rarely, I can't even think of a time in Scripture that God ever judged that way. It just kind of slowly faded away. That's not what takes place. God says the the pot represents Jerusalem. It's not going to slowly rust away. He sets the pot on fire. It's a boiling pot of intense judgment, intense fury. Nebuchadnezzar and his army have been handpicked by God to be the sword, as we've seen in previous chapters, to deliver the blow. As we mentioned before, Babylon will get its own judgment, but that's besides the point. God uses one wicked group to judge another wicked group all through history. Then in verse 7, we see, for the blood is in her midst. She is set uh, on top of a rock. Of course, Jerusalem sits on top of a mountain rock. If you've been to Israel, uh, you, you see that there it is on the top of that 2,500-foot you know, mountain, so to, uh, or about there. It sits on top of you know, solid rock. But there's blood in the pot, the Lord says. See, Judah, uh, the, the southern kingdom that still remained, the two tribes... In Jerusalem, of course, the capital, Judah was guilty of the blood of innocent child sacrifice. By the way, America is guilty of a lot of innocent blood sacrifices. To the sacrifice of, well, this is going to cramp my style. I can't take on a kid right now. God would say, but I told you to not get in bed until you got married. Well, but I forgot that. And so, the abortion clinic down the street helps me take care of silly mistakes like that. Now, I'm very empathetic to anyone that's ever gone through that. God forgives anything. He forgives the doctors, forgives a woman, and maybe someone in here, and there's no sin that God won't forgive. But we've talked about before, individual forgiveness is not the same as national sins. This is the point about the book of Ezekiel. God is addressing national sins. National sins are what the leaders say, hey, this is approved, it's approved by our courts, it's approved by our Senate, it's approved by, we okay this, and we are fine with it. Because when the nation says, God, these are our laws, rubber stamp them. God doesn't rubber stamp them. We're okay with it, are you okay with it? No. So the child sacrifice that was taking place, the blood of godly prophets who were killed for the faith, those that wouldn't compromise, the blood of crime and murder, just, just ordinary, if there's such a term, ordinary crime and murder. All of those things that were taking place, the same things that we still have in our own society. God says, all this blood is crying out to me, just like the blood of Abel all the way back in Genesis. Now, under the law, whenever blood was shed... According to Leviticus 17.13, you were supposed to take dust or dirt and quickly cover it up. You know, when blood lands in dirt, it just kind of the ground soaks it right up. And God had it under the Old Testament law that you couldn't have blood just sit there. You needed to get it cleaned up, covered up. But in their arrogance, the picture is not that literal blood just stayed out there but the picture is that they were completely unashamed and unrepentant of the blood that had been shed because if you wanted to cover it up say wow I don't want this is a bloody mess let's cover and clean this up but they didn't care they were, they were completely unabashedly hey we do child sacrifice this is our society we're okay with these things notice God's response look at verse 8 I'll set her blood on top of a rock that it may not be covered. You notice what God's saying? Since you're not ashamed of the blood, there's going to be a lot of shed blood. Because you have no shame about it, and you have no repentance for it. God says her blood, Jerusalem, the rebellious will have their own blood on top of that rock, which is Jerusalem, sitting on top of the rock, and won't absorb it. Jerusalem, you know, I remember we were walking through the streets of Jerusalem, I don't remember anywhere except for a couple of places around the temple where they had olive trees. Everywhere I walked was all, all rock. There would be no place to soak up that I can even remember. And most of the places, and it's just, it's just the, the top of the city, is solid rock. Remember all that? It's just, uh, so if you were to you know, spill a liquid, it just kind of runs down. It doesn't soak into the ground. And God says, all the blood that will be shed will be on top of that mountain rock where the city sits. In verses 9 and 10, woe to the bloody city talks about heaping up, make a great pyre, uh, heap up the wood, kindle the fire. You know, the heaping up, there'll be this great pile of, eventually when Babylon comes in, there'll be a great pile of bodies just stacked on top of each other. Just a horrific scene. Verse 11, then he goes on to say, set the pot empty on the coals. Eventually, after all the choice cuts of meat which represent the people after the slaughter has taken place, the city will be set on fire. Everything will be burned. Everyone will either be removed as a slave or slaughtered. Or run for their lives. Some will escape. A few people will escape with their lives. Very few. Uh, most will be taken away. Remember as we saw Babylon will cut off the noses and ears of many. That's not a fun way to be carried off is it? Interesting. The, ver- the very things that they like to listen to false deceptions. Uh, instead of having a nose uh, for uh, identifying things that were Repulsive. They had a craving for the things that were repulsive and all of the things that that, that God would allow to take place. But eventually the whole city would be burned. See, Babylon, you know, if you conquered a beautiful, I mean, Jerusalem in its day was such a gorgeous city. Instead of being able to take the city, Babylon, and use it as their own, they weren't going to do that. They were there to dominate, to let the entire region know Jerusalem would never be rebuilt again. Now, praise the Lord, it has been rebuilt. But they just leveled the city. Now, this would all take place. This is this doesn't start, remember, this isn't, now I'm speaking a little bit to the future because the siege has begun this very day. Now, what this picture, the pot and the boiling piece of meat, this is a picture of what will take place over the next 18 months, and then when the city walls are breached, the slaughter that will commence after that. So, at the outset right here, all that's happened now is the army has now surrounded the city, and the people will kind of uh, be starved out for the next 18 months. But once they do come in, God is saying this is what will happen. Just like the pot would be burned with nothing in it. You ever, had, you ever forget, you know, you've been boiling water, and you forget uh, that you go upstairs and you're doing something, or you, and you come back, and the water's long gone, and there's this smell of metal. Because now the metal is going to continue to take the heat as much as it possibly can. Uh, And uh, if there's, you know, any kind of, uh, even a trace of anything in there, even one noodle, it'll be smoking the whole house out. And eventually that will be incinerated to nothing. It would all burn down to just ash, and it would just continue. And that's the picture the Lord is saying, that anything, even a slight shred, will be burned down because Babylon will burn the city with a great, raging inferno of fire even the temple god's holy presence the temple god is going to let his own temple be destroyed all the gold carried away all the things taken out destroy solomon's great temple verse 13 your lewdness i've cleansed you but you weren't cleansed and you think about all we talked about before all the different revival periods there would be revivals but what would happen After revival, people would get comfortable, apathy goes to rebellion, goes to idolatry, on down the list we go, and then you have just complete resistance to God. And then there would be another revival, and then it would slide back, there'd be another revival. God says, I've cleansed you, but you've not been cleansed, because you've continued to go back... Uh, to the same lewdness and harlotries mentioned in previous chapters. Verse 14, I, the Lord, has spoken, it shall come to pass. Remember, this, the siege began that day, but the next 18 months, the clock is now ticking on all the utter calamity that's spoken of here. Uh, I won't hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I re- relent. According to your ways and according to your deeds, they will judge you. you no, know, God never is unfair with judgment. I mean, they're talking hundreds of years of warning here. But everyone says, but well, I don't think, it." you know, if it does happen, it'll be a future generation. It certainly won't be me. I don't know, the longer I'm saved, I try and look at it the other way. Lord, I know it could be me. It's an arrogant thing to think it's going to be somebody else. Or somebody else is, is more to blame. Or somebody else deserves it, but we certainly don't. Or... uh Another country perhaps, but certainly not us. Let's look at what takes place next with the sadness. Also verse 15, quite an also, isn't it? I me mean, just think about that. Also. Also the word of the Lord came to me, so there was a pause. We don't know how long this pause was. God gives him this, okay, this is a bad report I have to give. I have to paint this. Really ugly picture of the pot and all that stuff. But if your Ezekiel is as, as troubling as it is that Jerusalem, his beloved city, that the judgment day has now come, because he always knew it was coming, but it's one thing to know something's coming versus when it actually does come. Well, I think that so-and-so could die someday, but then when they really do pass, you still have a lot of sorrow, don't you? You know that it could happen. And so the city surrounded. That's sad enough, and he's got to tell uh, those that are exiles there in Babylon, he's got to give this uh, picture to them, this parable to them of the pot and all the things that are in it. Uh, But then the Lord, at some point, there's some pause. We don't know how long the pause is. And the Lord says, and then the Lord came to me and said, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke, yet you shall neither mourn nor weep. Nor shall tears run down your face. You'll sigh in silence, verse 17, make no mourning. And then we see what it is that the Lord is speaking of in verse 18. So I spoke to the people in the morning. He tells them this parable in the morning, but at evening my wife died. The next morning I did as I was commanded. As I read to study this passage, even though I'm very familiar with it, you know, from past studies and prior readings of Ezekiel, I personally, just studying this again this week, I became burdened and sad myself when my mind, I try to take my mind and travel back to that one day in Ezekiel's life, that one day. Remember he had that other one day when he turned 30 at the beginning of chapter 1 where he saw the glory of the Lord, but this is a different one day. This day his wife dies in the evening after he gives the prophecy in the morning, and she doesn't appear to be in bad health. There's nothing except for God says, I'm taking her home for my purposes. See, Ezekiel and his wife, Ezekiel and his wife, not just Ezekiel, Ezekiel and his wife. But folks, if you're married, you're one flesh. My wife is stuck in the ministry, so to speak, with me. No, I should, my wife loves being in the ministry with me. I'm just kidding. You know what I mean? And I actually told her, I said, you know, if anyone needs to go, um, you know, I should go first. She said, no, you should go first. No, you know, back and forth, you know, which one? But Ezekiel and his wife are chosen by God, and they're chosen together as a somber and sobering sign to the people. How'd you like this ministry calling? God knew it before time began. That this was what he was going to do on this specific day. Ezekiel didn't know that. He might not have even wanted to get married if he'd known that. They were called, and he was called, because she's in the glory of heaven, but he was called to endure tragedy for God's purposes here. Do you find yourself ever wondering you ever find yourself sometimes wondering, what is the meaning of the Christian life? I don't care how many times you've read your Bible. What is the meaning of the Christian life? What is the meaning of your life personally? You can ask yourself, am I here to enjoy life, to endure sorrow, or simply to fulfill the will and plans of God? Yes. Enjoy life, endure sorrow, fulfill the will and plans of God. Yes. See, all those things can happen and will happen in the course of a lifetime. Maybe not as tragic as what Ezekiel endures here. But as you read the scriptures, you, what, is the, what is the meaning of Job's life? John the Baptist's life? The Apostle Paul's life? What's the meaning of their lives? Well, Paul summed it up this way, drink offering. So Paul said, said, I can sum up my whole life to you, drink offering. Ezekiel had come to know that his life and his breath belonged to God. This was incredibly painful. Can you imagine God gives you a message that, hey, here's the message, Hard enough message to deliver. Oh, by one other thing. Your wife will be taken from you today. But you're not allowed to cry about it. Not even shed a single tear. Not even mourn like, like the Hebrews would mourn. You are to go on and just move right forward. But he had come to know that his life and breath belonged to God. As painful as this was, he still trusted the Lord. Abraham reached that point, didn't he? It took him a lot of years, but he reached that point that he said, all right, I'll even take Isaac right up to the top of Mount Moriah, and I'll give him right back to you. I waited all these years for him, and I'll give him straight back. Job reached that point when he refused to curse God, when everyone else probably would have. Getting to the place where men like Abraham Moses, job reached getting to those places where Ezekiel and Peter and Paul, getting to that place where you trust God at that level, it you know what it takes? I really I did a lot of thinking about it. Where does it take to get to where you really believe the way Ezekiel believed here? Because he said he did what the Lord commanded. Well, it takes. Day after day after day of dying to ourselves. That's what it takes. Day after day of dying to ourselves, and then seeing that God is glorified through it. You can't have somebody just tell you about it, you have to live it yourself. Ezekiel couldn't, no one else could bear this for him. He had to have already had a pattern of dying to himself. Now he had because you go back and you look at the crazy things he already had to do. He could have said, God, I laid on my side all that time. How could you possibly take my wife? But he didn't say any of that because those things actually made him ready for the deeper waters. He could go into some really deep water because he had already gone waist high, chest high, and now he's all the way in neck high. Jesus, going to the cross, with his relationship with the Father, essentially, Father, if it saves a lot of lives, yes, I'll go. Not my will, but he, what do he say? Thy will be done. Sometimes the will of God doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? I mean, really. I've I've seen many things in my life that I cannot, if somebody said, can you explain this? Why God would allow this? I cannot explain it. But I still know God's faithful. This is where faith really comes in, folks, doesn't it? Our perspective is so limited, isn't it? We're so limited. You know... We, we, we can only gather, I can gather on all my 46 years and the little bit of scripture I can possibly comprehend and God says, is that all you got? And if we could add our collective intellectual horsepower from all 7 million people on earth, we haven't even been a whisper in understanding anything. This is how the Lord can say, Isaiah 55, 10, 11. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than your, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You either have to believe that or you don't believe it. Because if you don't believe it, you're not going to do anything that God asks you to do. And you're not going to wade into neck-high water. You won't even wade into ankle-high because you won't trust God. But these men had built... Their faith, time after time after time after time. What our brothers and sisters are enduring in parts of Africa right now, parts of the Middle East right now, parts of Asia right now, is literally, not, this is not an exaggeration, unfathomable to Americans. Myself included. You can watch it, you can read about it in Voice of the Mars, you can try and understand it, but it still isn't fathom. and the reason we know is nobody weeps about it. That's how we know it's that unfathomable. So much so that we just prefer to not even think about it. For the most people, vast majority of the American church does not think about this at all. But Hebrews 13.3 says we have to think about it. Say, well, I don't know 13.3. Well, go look it up. Be with your brothers and sisters as if you're chained with them. See, they're not thinking about, our brothers and sisters in northern Syria tonight are not thinking about shopping at the mall. They're not thinking about what's on TV tonight. They're not thinking about the NBA finals. They're not thinking about having a barbecue this weekend. They're not thinking about going on vacation. They're not thinking about summer projects. They're not thinking about summer hobbies. They're not thinking about learning a second language or getting a master's degree or an MBA or any of these other things. No, they're just praying they're going to eat tonight and maybe find water. That's what they're enduring And somehow, by the grace of God, that they'll survive. And yet, in all of that, because I've watched a number of things even lately to try and get more in tune with our brothers and sisters, they're fearless and compassionate. Fearless and compassionate. Whereas the American church is fearful and not so compassionate. That's how Ezekiel could be as he was able to take this on but you know our brothers and sisters and these other parts of the world remember they're not in bondage to stuff they're not in bondage to american stuff so they're so not in bondage to it they actually are looking forward to heaven they can't wait to get to heaven whereas the rest of america is like but this is awesome But they're saying, no, earth's not awesome. Ezekiel would say, no, earth's not awesome. Jerusalem is in flames, and my wife died. So he would be saying, heaven, I want to be there with her. And though... They still try and survive. And some people say, well, if they want to go to heaven, this, would be, this might be some American trying to think through it in the church. So, Well, if they really want to go to heaven, I, I would hope they... You know, why, why do they want to survive? They're children. I, watch the interviews. They're hoping to make it through that their kids could someday have children and that they would see a reverse of the curse of what's going on and they would see many people saved. And here's the cool thing. That is actually happening. I was watching uh, Victor Marks and Mike McIntosh just from two weeks ago, May 17th at Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley. I watched, I sent it out on Facebook. Some of you may have went and watched it. But I watched it, and like Ezekiel, our brothers and sisters that are in the same area of the world. Matter matter of fact, remember Ezekiel? He was in modern-day Iraq. Same part of the world, our brothers and sisters that are over there right now, they're clinging to God. They're not clinging to family, and they're not clinging to things. They're clinging to God. Uh, While so many Americans, including Americans in the church, are clinging to personal relationships, possessions, and entertainment. Personal relationships, possessions, and entertainment. As we saw Sunday in Luke 14, remember when Jesus invited everyone to the banquet? What did Jesus say their excuses were? Possessions and people. I, I, I got a big family. We got lots of stuff going on. I can't come, Lord. And I, I've got property, and I've got oxen, and I've got this, and I've got that. And our brothers and sisters, they don't have any of that stuff hanging on. So who are they hanging on to? Jesus. Ezekiel was carried away as a captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. He was already carried away. He had already lost his country. Now his city's in flames. Now he lost his wife. And Ezekiel's like, who else do I have but you anyway? And you can see how that would either be the faith that holds you or the, would make some people become an atheist. And we know which way he goes. In his, uh, I love this uh, passage in uh, Habakkuk chapter 3. Though the fig tree may not blossom nor there be fruit in the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk reached that point. Ezekiel reached that point. And our brothers and sisters are reaching that point. I was watching, when I said I was watching that video with Victor and Mike, Victor tells the story, or Mike tells the story of one woman, true story over there right now, Four times ISIS knocks on her door. Recant or we'll cut off your head. She said, "I will not recant." One group would leave. They they were stunned, and the Holy Spirit just gave her that boldness. Another group comes. She says, "Fine, I'm not recanting my faith in Jesus Christ." Another group comes. Four times, fearless, but they're trusting God in the dark. They're trusting God in the dark, and they're seeing the miraculous. Christianity Today, this past week, this was the article. This I'm quoting from Christianity Today last week. It says, missionaries working in the Islamic world noted that more Muslims have converted to Christianity in the last 14 years since the devastating September 2001 terrorist attacks in the U.S. than the number of converts in recent years, or the number of converts in recent years this period they said, is greater than the entire 14 years of all of Islamic history. One Middle East Christian man in the article said, Islam is going to collapse. Their own violence is causing many Muslims to go ahead and be willing to die, but at least they find Christ. There's a wave of turning to two things. Interesting what they're turning A wave of turning to two things in the Middle East, atheism and Jesus Christ. Because with that kind of carnage, there's only two options. It's either turn to God or believe there is no God. Ezekiel knew there was a God. How did he know? Well, God told him. See, you know there's a God when God tells you what's going on 700 miles away. You know there's a God when you already saw the glory of God and the wheels of God and the cherubim and all those things back in chapter 1. Once you know God exists, nothing can shake your faith. Christian, if you believe he exists, nothing can shake your faith. The, the, the depth of the water will only make it deeper. See, Ezekiel, even though it was troubling for him, he knew God was on the throne because he saw the throne. He actually saw the throne come down out of heaven, and he wouldn't forget that. So he's like, even though I wouldn't have taken my wife, I know she's in a wonderful place, and I'll be there pretty soon because I'm just passing through. But after all of this that's going on in the, in the Middle East too, Pastor Floyd Rosho said he's baptized more than 100 former Muslims, and he maintained that ISIS has caused many Muslims to come to Jesus. And the same is true with Boko Haram in Africa. And the same is true with the North Korean communist government. More North Koreans, in spite of all that, want to come to Jesus, even it uh, means torture and prisons. We have to trust the painful places with God We have to trust God in those times, but how do we do it? It has to be meditating on his word and in prayer. See, Ezekiel knew the word of God. He was constantly speaking it. He was constantly having it given to him, but he was also in constant communion with God in prayer. Otherwise, you'll fall apart. I'll fall apart. Aside from Ezekiel's personal trial and the testing of his faith, because in this chapter, even though you've got this macro story of Israel, there's this micro story of Ezekiel, which obviously I spent some time on just now, because we can relate to one-on-one, can't we? Sometimes more than we can relate to the massive thing that's taking place in Jerusalem. Aside from his personal trial and the testing of his faith, what else was conveyed with the death of ezekiel 's wife because it seems like an odd thing here, why did God do it and what 's the odd response that the Lord tells him to have of no mourning don 't eat any any of the um, the mourner 's food? what that means is um, uh, if you 've ever even even this is we see some of this in, in America too. I remember a few years back uh, when my sister died. Um, I, we had tons of people that just wanted to come bring us meals. I mean, we had knocks on the door. We got phone calls. We was, they don't know what to do. Can we just bring you something to eat? And so we had like this whole just table full. Of, and it was actually two tables full of food because people, it was people's way of saying, we just want to bring you a meal or something like that. And in the Jewish culture, when there would be a death, people would come and they'd bring food and they would just sit there. Not counsel you, not give you wisdom, not give you just just eat little morsels with you. But God told Ezekiel, don't even do it. Don't eat the food with them. Almost as if there was no funeral at all. Act like it act like she didn't even pass away. And so what else is being conveyed with this? Well, Ezekiel, he's the survivor. In the day of judgment, he represents the one who by God's grace has survived. His wife is gone. He has survived. There will always be survivors and those that are gone. Always. Neither will ever go away until the end of the age, and it's difficult to be the survivor. But he's lost all that matters to him. He doesn't you know, once you've lost your country, once you've been taken away in exile, your wife or your spouse is about all you got left. It really matters. He might have a house, he might have a little bit, of, but those things don't really matter. He's lost what matters to him most. It's gone in a moment. And remember this, brothers and sisters, sin always hurts innocent people. The sins of Jerusalem cost Ezekiel too. Well, my sin won't bother anybody. Yes, it will. Our sin costs other people. Not only did it cost Jesus, but it still cost it cost Jesus, obviously, on the cross, but it still cost people in our life, in our lifetimes. For the survivors, again, just looking at what did this death convey for the survivors, the sudden loss of the temple. The temple. It meant so much. Even though they had chosen, they had mixed it with idolatry, they still revered the temple. Remember, even in Jesus' time, they'd swear against, they swear on the temple. Even though that wasn't anything God ever wanted them to do, but it just gives you an idea of the reverence. That would have been the the second temple anyway, but their Herod's temple. But their sons and daughters, they would lose as well. The Lord says here that your sons and daughters will be slain. Well, they would lose the temple. They would lose the city. Even the exiles would mourn greatly over this to know that when the courier finally comes to say, the city's gone, the people are gone, everyone's been killed or taken away, and they've they've maimed many of them. Any close personal friends, husband, wives, parents, it's heart-wrenching beyond words. Remember, in those moments, words, people don't really say much, they just weep. They don't have any words to say. And so the quietness speaks of a morning where you won't even know what to say. You ever been there where you were so sad you didn't have words? And so this is, this is a picture. He's like, you're not going to have anything to say because they won't have anything to say in Jerusalem. The temple being destroyed would feel like the promises. It would feel like the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and David had been revoked. It would feel like they'd been fully revoked. And as far as they might have thought, they were revoked. The carpet had pulled out and that God was no longer going to keep the covenant with them. Because they hadn't kept the covenant with him. Praise the Lord. He keeps it with his own honor, not with ours. Amen. Israel, the once great nation, would soon be an ash heap. The God of the fathers was now silent. While Babylon utterly destroys the glory of Jerusalem this would make them speechless. And so the picture of Ezekiel not saying anything, his wife dying, it's like a picture of Jerusalem dying, but the people would be speechless if they survived at all. But in addition to the pain, there's some other insight uh, as to why Ezekiel would not mourn. Think about it this way. If an emergency room doctor, if an emergency room doctor was in a place where his spouse got killed, but many other people are laying on the ground dying, would he stop and mourn, or would he start immediately tending to everybody else? He'd mourn later. Right? Men on the battlefield know that you, at that moment, you tend to the guys that are there, you mourn for the others later. And the urgency of what would take place with Ezekiel would not have time to mourn and the people would not have to mourn, it would be run for your lives. You can mourn later. Delayed grief. You know, uh, my older sister, when she passed in 1981, so I've had two sisters that have passed and my mom and brother are here and they obviously know this well, but and I, I had a delayed grief for her many, many years later. Maybe just because I was too young when she had passed. But there can be a delayed grief with things that take place. And so Ezekiel wouldn't mourn at all. Well, we'll come to a close. It's not just that, you know, in verse 21, these are the last words. If you're taking notes, the silence will close with this. Speak to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I will profane my sanctuary and your arrogant boast. And the Lord goes on, said Ezekiel, you'll be assigned to them that you'll be, you will not speak to them. You'll not speak until it says in verse 20, 26 and 27, on the day one who escapes, so someone will escape from the carnage, will make it all the way to Babylon, verse 27, on that day your mouth will be opened to him who escapes, you shall speak and no longer be mute. But during that time, God says there's going to be no more discussion. From Ezekiel, that is. Ezekiel will not be prophesying anymore. He won't be given any more parables. Until the destruction is complete, God will go silent during that time. The last words. And he says, your arrogant boast. Some of your Bibles may say, the pride of your power. That's a good question for us to ask. What is our arrogant boast? What's the pride of our power? Because God is grace to the humble, but he does what? He resists the proud. Any kind of pride in our own life, God will come against it. If there's pride in our life, he will absolutely come against it. But the silence is going to be there. God's not going to be speaking during these Uh, it's going to take uh, from the siege will last not only the 18 months, but then the Uh, The survivor won't get to Ezekiel till six months after the destruction, all the way in 586 B.C. That's in chapter 33. When we get up to chapter 33, you'll see the destruction in that chapter. But God will be silent when he said more than enough. Does that make sense? God will be silent when he said more than enough. If God didn't speak another word to America, he would have every right to now be silent. Leonard Ravenhill, and he said this back, I presume in the 60s or 70s, he did most of his teaching, he said, I've heard a million words, sermons, and read books, and I'm accountable to God for everything I have. Leonard Ravenhill, he said, I've heard a million words, sermons, read books, I'm accountable to God for everything. Everything we've heard, we're now accountable for. So if God decided to say, I'm not speaking on the matter anymore, you're going to have to take what you have, what are we going to do with what we've already been given? What were the hearers of Ezekiel? Ezekiel didn't need to share anything else with them. They had the opportunity to do what? Get really mad at God, throw a tantrum, although they didn't lose their wife that day, only he did. They could just say, I'm done with this whole thing. I don't believe it. I won't believe it until the courier gets here. Or they could humble themselves and say, woe is me, have mercy on me, God. You see the various responses that were still available to them? Once God went silent, that wasn't the end. God wasn't saying, now that I'm silent, you guys all go back to whatever you were doing. Sometimes as a parent, have you ever just stopped saying something? All of a sudden the kids respond more to sudden silence than you or me flipping out a little bit. Why aren't you speaking? You'd never not speak. God getting silent has a heavy weight, doesn't it? It's, and he's using that to say, Ezekiel, you're done. Step off the stage, go away, and let them marinate on everything they've heard. Because God's desire is not that they marinated on it and just be eternally bummed out. His desires, they marinated on it and humble themselves and get on their knees. Amen? Amen? That they would someday have the same faith that Ezekiel had. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for even in such a difficult passage, you're really giving it to us to build us up, to strengthen us, to take us into deeper waters, to understand that it's never been your desire to punish or destroy, but you've been in your desire to, to bind up and to heal. And Lord, I just pray that for us, the, the many things that we've heard in our lifetime from your word and in prayer, Lord, if there's things that we're resisting, that we would stop resisting them. If there's things that we're clinging to that are not the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would cling by faith to you and you alone. That we'd be married to you as a faithful bride, and, Lord, we'd be in partnership with our brothers and sisters in prayer and care and support of them. For, Lord, someday it could be us that's in the difficult days, and we know they'd be there for us, and we know you'll be there for us. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, these things would strengthen our love for you and our resolve to just cut away the chains and the weights that so easily ensnare us. And that, Lord, we be living as lights and witnesses in our own nation in the days in which we live. For, Lord, you're too speaking words of warning to us, and may we be listening before you go silent. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you're dismissed. That we do have a.